this episode, our annual Halloween fright episode. <laughs> Come into my laboratory. I'd like to show you something. Now, are you going to take your horror straight, no chaser? Or silly pretend scares like watching Scooby-Doo with the kids? This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glacier. What are you waiting for? Admission is free to Bellycast, the podcast of the carnival and sideshow. You're just in time. We're going to have a free show. We're going to bring out the strange people, the weird people. Here they come now. Watch the doorway. You'll see what they do. You'll hear what they talk about. They're all alive on the inside. Get your ticket and come in. Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen. Some important words of warning. This podcast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Bellycast, episode 160, brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment. For showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. The feature segment of today's show, a story drawn from my favorite frightening film, as read by its director. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, for inwardly they are ravening wolves. Also, news and much more. Don't look. There's something right behind you. Oh, never mind. It's just belly cast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. We often begin with a list of who died recently. This month's list of notable deaths is simple. Common sense and decency. Dead as a doornail. You are about to come face to face with Basket Case. Please slip on your free, specially designed surgical mask that has been provided for you. Be certain it's fastened tightly. Let's all step into the operating room together. Dr. Needleman has just finished sedating the patient. The operation will now begin. Nurse... The scalpel, please. Conscious. Oh, there's blood all over my mask, all over the room. <laughs> Basket case, a different twist in horror. To keep the blood off your face, a free, specially designed surgical mask will be provided to every patron entering the theater. Don't dare enter without your mask.
boogeyman, the terrible, horrible boogeyman. I come in the middle of the night and frighten bad little girls like you. Beware, better have a care. I'm going to follow you everywhere. I crawl through the ceiling and the wall and call on bad little girls like you. I'll torture you and haunt you. I've got you where I want you. A victim of my dark and dirty plot. And at the slightest whim, I'll tear you limb from limb. In other words, I'll put you on the spot. Ooh, I'm the boogeyman. The terrible, horrible boogeyman. I come in the middle of the night and frighten bad little girls like you. From the past, from the pages of Amusement Business Magazine, comes a huge catalog of plans for carnival games, joints, acts, and much more. Old-time carnies knew that they could assemble any kind of attraction from the plans published by Aaron Brill, and every one of them is described in Brill's Bible of Building Plans, 276 pages of fascination. And because you asked for it, it's now available as a PDF file for download for just $5.99. Get your Carnival Picks today, where I also have a selection of Brill's plans available for download with more to come. See it today. I miss a good old-fashioned dark ride. I can't imagine anyone over the age of three being actually scared. But the atmosphere, from the art, the various gags, the motion, the smell of oil and electric motors and old wood... They can't help but bring nostalgia and a smile. In the news, Guillermo del Toro has remade Nightmare Alley the classic movie about carnies, the earnest and the evil, in which an ambitious and manipulative carny hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Step right up and behold one of the unexplained mysteries of the universe. Is he man or beast? This creature has been examined by the foremost scientists and pronounced unequivocally 
a man. I am prepared to offer you folks one last chance to witness this supreme oddity. Where did it come from? Begotten by the same lust and threat that got us all walking on this earth, but gone wrong somehow in maternal wombs. Is it a beast or is it a man? Tonight, and you will see him feed. Come on in and find out. Is he man or beast? Speaking of horrors, Lillian Gish, known as the First Lady of American Cinema, has suffered the removal of her name from a campus theater, and it's not sitting well with many important movie authorities. For over 40 years, a theater at Bowling Green State University has borne the names of Lillian Gish and her sister Dorothy, also an actress. More than 50 film industry leaders, from Martin Scorsese to Helen Mirren to James Earl Jones and many more, are protesting the decision to remove the name because Lillian appeared in the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation. Some students from the Black Student Union at Bowling Green were upset, and in their words, honoring her in any way contributes to an intimidating, even hostile educational environment. That's dismaying. She was one of the most significant actresses in our cultural history in a career that lasted from 1912 to 1987. There's no indication that she herself ever held racist views, and to single out just one film over a hundred years old, offensive as it is, is unjust. This should be a teachable moment, and the university should handle it with a much more nuanced sense of history. These 18-year-old kids might not understand some things that a woman with a 75-year career understood. A listener recalls this from the old days. I'm sure there are some who remember the good old days in the great outdoor amusement field and a few of the accommodations supplied by folks outside the business to those of us inside it. For example, if you needed a driver's license, you called Mrs. Miller in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, who worked in the state licensing department at the courthouse. She would ask if you wanted an operator's license or a chauffeur's license. She'd tell you the amount plus tip, and after she got your check, she'd mail you a blank license to fill out yourself, and you could make yourself older if you needed to. Or if you needed a license plate for a vehicle, you called Mrs. Bailey in Selma, Alabama, gave her the VIN number, make and model, send the fee, again including a generous tip, and back would come a license plate and registration. All registrations Mrs. Bailey sent showed an address of Route 1, Selma, Alabama. Later, at a grand jury hearing, she was asked, 
Just how many show people live on Route 1, Mrs. Bailey? She answered, several, it's a nice area. She was never actually tried for or convicted of wrongdoing, and she made plenty of money, but had to quit her little operation. During her tenure, other states became weary of Alabama truck tags and threatened to stop any trucks displaying them. Every spring, King Brothers Circus opened in Central City Park, where it wintered. Mel Fleming, the legal adjuster, would call all of the drivers and would-be drivers together. He'd have a handful of blank Georgia licenses, and after asking a man if he could drive a truck, he'd hand the fellow a license and tell him to fill it out any way he pleased. It's history now, but that's the way it was. As weird as things in the White House have been in recent years, they were every bit as weird or even weirder back in history. Harry Truman was sure that hauntings were taking place during White House renovations. President Warren Harding's wife Florence regularly met with psychics and mediums at the White House. Many people know that Abraham Lincoln, at the prompting of his wife Mary, had seances in the White House after the death of their son Willie. But before any of those, just before Franklin Pierce was inaugurated, his son Benjamin was killed in a train wreck. For his wife Jane... Witnessing her son's horrible death was so traumatic that she never recovered emotionally. She was inconsolable for weeks and so paralyzed by grief she was unable to attend her husband's inauguration. She remained in solitude in the family quarters of the White House where she wrote lengthy letters to her dead son. The staff said they would sometimes hear her call to Benjamin and at other times she was heard playing with her three children, though all three of them were dead. Benjamin, Franklin Jr., who had died as an infant, and Frank Robert, who died at age four from typhus. Jane had been raised as a strict Calvinist, and accordingly believed that Benjamin's death was divine punishment for her husband's political ambitions, and President Pierce came to agree. Surely this was God's judgment. Jane Pierce longed for contact with her son's spirit and had heard about the Fox sisters mentioned just one episode ago in episode 159. The Fox sisters had recently become nationally known for their table wrapping as the spiritualism revival swept across the nation as it tends to do from time to time. The Fox sisters were soon invited to the White House to attempt to communicate with Benjamin Pierce in the next world. There are no records of what happened at this seance, but the Fox sisters could be very convincing. In the cool of the 
First you say no, you got some plans for the night, and then you stop and say, All right, love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you. You always keep me guessing, I never seem to know what you are thinking. And if a fella looks at you, it's for sure you're. from the late Ward Hall. You know how these effects are done, or you should. Some are real and some are illusions. But my God, listen to the way he describes them. Every word has a reason. Every phrase has a payoff, all calculated to sell. Who could resist paying anything they wanted to see something like this? This is a program of the events that you will see on our stage. Twelve acts alive. Those continuously, so when you go in, stay till you see the same act that was working when you went in, and then you see it a second time, you know you've seen the whole show. And if you do that, you'll see everything that's advertised and even more. Here today, from Sao Paulo, Brazil, Rosita Rodriguez. A woman who has growing on her body the same kind of rough, tough, scaly skin that grows on the body of this snake. You're going to see the queen of kerosene drinking, burning gasoline like you and I would enjoy an iced tea. And the world's champion sword swallower, John Stewart, to entertain. Tristan is a man who puts a steel fish hook in his tongue and lifts heavy weights with that hook embedded in his tongue, while Volterra, the woman that's in the electric shop, 
with light righteous from her fingers and a light rope from her nose. And then today you're going to be entertained by the human blockhead driving nails into his head with a hammer. Logan, the rubber man, whose skin stretches like rubber. And you're going to see as pictured on the third painting from Santa Rosa, Costa Rica, Miss Vicky Condor. The only woman in the world alive with four legs, four feet, twenty toes, and she's going to dance for you. A sight to behold is Unique Monique from Hamburg, Germany, pictured on that first painting, and ladies and gentlemen, she looks just like that picture. A woman alive that does visibly not have any head at all. And when you see her today, it is a sight to behold. But the strangest of them all is a 17-year-old high school girl. Her name is Angela Perez. Angela has a normal head and an absolutely beautiful face. But that is all that's beautiful and normal about her. Because from the neck down, she has a body that looks like a tarantula spider. It's not pretty. It's not nice. When you look at her, it may shock you. But you'll never forget the spider girl and friends. If you have questions about her, ask her because she wants to talk to people and she'll be glad to answer your questions. Now, Poobah, you really need the fire, okay? While Poobah is eating the fire, at this time I would like to introduce to you the star of our show. An act known as Zorin and Ngavi, it is the most sensational, daring, outrageous and the most dangerous act ever presented at the Minnesota State Fair in its long history. This young lady, Zorina, is going to step into a steel-barred, iron-bound, electrified cage. And when the door is once locked, she will undergo a transformation caused by self-hypnosis in which her entire personality and her physical being will change. First, you will see her eyes sink back into her head. You will see the color of her complexion change to a different hue. And starting at the ankles, you will see long, shaggy black hair growing all over her body and her head. And within 30 seconds, my friends, this woman, as you see her here, will no longer exist. Because in her place, you are going to see a giant, 400-pound, vicious African gorilla. And when I say vicious, that's what I mean. And that's why this act must be presented within that cage. Because if that gorilla ever gets out, we'll all get out. At this time, Zarina is going to retire because she has to get mentally prepared for her transition. Right now, I'll watch the little man eat the fire, and this is a big show. There's only one small part of it, and that's the price of admission. If I was to ask you 10 tickets, believe me, it's worth that. That's not what we have. It's our show, 12 big acts all alive, and it's only six tickets to see the entire show. If you have your tickets, you bring them to our ticket taker right over here. If you do not have tickets, they sell them at the ticket booth right behind you over there. And now, watch the little man, and watch the young lady's neck. Hold it, Pooba. 
Watch your next one, two, three, pull the rope right through without any signs or not. Now here he goes, down the hatch without a scratch. This is the last fight. And now it's showtime, so come on in. They're ready to entertain you right now. There's no waiting, the show is going on. They look right in the doorway and just, oh look, look, there's the giant man standing up. The Viking giant from Richard Iceland. He is so tall, standing erect, his head nearly touches the top of that high tent. When you go in there, stand right beside the giant. Compare your height to a man over eight feet tall. Probably the tallest human who ever walked on this earth. He's in there now. Bring your camera. Take a picture of yourself standing by the giant. And you can have a picture of yourself with the giant to show your friends at home what you saw here at the fair. It's a big show and it's going on all the time. Right now, entertaining on the stage. What? What's that? I have just been informed that the headless woman is awake now. And that means if you wish, you can go in there and shake hands with a woman alive who does not have any head at all. Just walk up to her stage, extend your hand out to her, and she, in turn, will reach out to you. Now, she can't see you, she can't hear you, she has no head, but she will let you grasp her hand, shake her hand, and when you feel her foot, you're going to know beyond any doubt this is a real human woman alive, even though she doesn't seem to have a head. It's showtime. Come right in. Only six coupons, six tickets. Give the tickets to the gentleman there. If you need tickets, they sell them at the ticket booth right there. We're going to have a little free show in just a minute. We're going to have some of the girls on here. Have you ever seen a snake smoke a pipe? Did you ever see a snake ride a bicycle? Did you ever see a snake stand on its tail and bounce a ball on its head? This snake is a South American red-tailed boa constrictor. There are 22 species of boa constrictors in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, some of them are quite vicious. This one is very tame. And this snake, ladies and gentlemen, is 7 feet long and it weighs 21 pounds. Now, I apologize to you. I'm very sorry that we can't bring one of the big snakes out here. But inside, you're going to see in a big glass steel reinforced cage a female Burmese python about the size of a telephone pole. She is 20 feet long, weighs over 200 pounds. I'm so strong she could squeeze a horse to death. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask everyone to come right down in close. I'm going to introduce this young lady here in just a moment. But first, I would like to have her show you a little trick of magic. Now, this young lady is our lady magician, and she is going to show you at this time how we take her head off of her body and make it rise and float in the air. But actually, this is just a little trick. It's very simple to do. You have to be simple like me to do it. You don't have to agree with that. All you have to have to do this trick are two things. First, you must have a girl who is willing to let you take her head off and make it float in the air. And any of you gentlemen who are thinking about doing that, for legal reasons, remember, 
always get their permission first. Bonnie, can I take your head off and make it float in the air? Yes, you can. Oh, isn't that sweet? She says yes to everything with you. Ladies and gentlemen, next you have to have a piece of clothesline rope. Now, I know this is clothesline rope. I personally stole it. I mean, borrowed it from a lady's clothesline. I, don't laugh, lady. It might be your clothesline. I'm going to tie the clothesline right around Bunny's dirty, uh, dainty little neck. I'll tie it into a knot that I call a square knot. Takes an old square like me to tie. In just a moment, I'll count three and pull the rope. And when I pull the rope, Bunny says it's going to pop right off. It will rise in the air about that far. And while her head is momentarily floating in the air, I will pass the rope right through her neck without untying the knot. Then her head will settle back down and reconnect to her body, and she will go on well and happy if the trick works. Now, if this trick works, it's a good trick, and everybody has a lot of fun. And if it doesn't work, it's even a better trick, and everybody has even more fun, except poor old Bunny. Of course, if it doesn't work on Bunny, I'd like to try it on that young lady next. So, sir, hold on to her. Don't let her get away. Thank you. Now, before I take Bunny's head off, I have a gentleman over here I want you to meet, and his name is Poobah. And just three weeks ago, he finished a movie called Carney that stars Jodie Foster. For that movie, he had to learn how to do fire, which he's going to do right now. He loves to eat fire. And his girlfriend is glad. She said this is why he gives hot kisses. You ready to eat the fire? Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, here we have just three of the 12 remarkable people who present the world of wonders. This is the world's largest fairground show. It is a palace of illusion where you see the strangest people in all the world alive conceived and created by magic illusion and legitimate. Go ahead and eat the fire. Out of the depths of darkness rises Garganta, the true king of monsters. He's on his way, alive, in person, to scare the yell out of you. Garganta, on the stage, in Dr. Siltini's giant triple scream show, for the first time on any stage. The stage show that brought you the Frankenstein monster in person now brings you direct from Hollywood, Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe, alive and in person in a three-hour performance filled with more chills, thrills, laughs than you've ever experienced in this century. It is engrossing, exciting, fascinating, filled with tense climaxes, gripping scenes, beautiful starlets. Yes, it's Garganta, this wild, inhuman menace, this 782 pounds of dynamite that makes Kong the gorilla look like a monkey. And that's not all. During the dark seance when all the lights are dim, ghosts, spirits, and vampires descend into the audience. You may find yourself holding a ghost, your girl, or someone else's girl. So watch out when the lights go out. But as Mae West would say, it'll separate the men from the boys. In New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, critics have proclaimed this stage attraction to be the show you must not miss. 
even though it's a stage presentation to send you home in frantic flight, there are also some very eye-appealing scenes created by these beautiful Hollywood starlets in gorgeous costumes designed by Adrian. Yes, it's a stage show for everyone. But those of you under 16, please be accompanied by an adult. Not only because of what takes place during the performance in the Dark Sea Ants, but the adult may be afraid to walk home alone. Now is your first and only chance to see, in person, on stage, and alive, Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe. Watch for it. Remember the time, the place, and the date to see Garganta, alive, and in person. In our online shop, a growing collection of complete plans for timeless carnival attractions and acts. Here's one working performers can use today. From the 1940s, a complete pseudo-hypnotic act. The full set of secrets for performing a sideshow-style hypno-act with four detailed routines. Crowd-pleasers like the rigid arm, standing three men on the subject's chest, stopping the pulse, and breaking a stone on the chest. You can select your favorite individual effects or perform the entire set as a complete act. The manuscript is a detailed guide to presentation. There's no actual hypnosis involved, not even the careful scripting and attention control that modern stage hypnotists depend on. Digitized and carefully restored in PDF format for just $4. For a real piece of carnival history or a working act that still plays well today, use the link on the podcast page. Want to have even more fun? Learn stuff? Subscribe to Ballycast. You're not in school anymore. There's no homework. There are links on the webpage at Ballycast.com or subscribe on iTunes. And all previous episodes are available as well. See you next episode. And now... A perfect story for the season when evil things walk among us. Actor Charles Lawton only directed one film, and he tells the story right here. Settle in for a scare. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, for inwardly they are ravening wolves.
Let me tell you a tale of two children, of all children. Once upon an evil time of hunger and depression in our land, they lived with their mother Willa and their father Ben Harper in a house by the river, cradled and comforted in the green arms of the great Ohio Valley. Their town was called Cresap's Landing, and the boy's name was John, and the girl was Pearl. Now, Ben Harper was a good man in an evil season, a hungry season. And one day he took a gun to the bank where he drew his pay each week and he slew two men. Wounded, he fled homeward with a stolen fortune, praying in his broken mind and body that this money might someday prove provender for his loved ones, that these ten thousand plundered dollars would shield his children from the cold shadow of want and need that had chilled his own time on earth, and even as the police car screamed close behind him down the road to his home by the river, Ben hid the cursed, crinkling treasure in his little girl's doll. And he made John swear and he made Pearl swear that they would never tell, that they would never, never tell. And he made John swear that he would guard his little sister's life with his own, if need be. And John swore. And they took Ben away and sentenced him to hang. Now, by a strange and unholy chance, there happened to be in the same prison cell with Ben Harper a man called Preacher. Ben was to hang, but Preacher would go free soon. All Preacher had done was to steal a car. Preacher was not a bad sort. Preacher was a man of the Lord at heart. You see his hands? Look at the fingers, the tattooed fingers. The fingers of the left hand spell H-A-T-E, hate. And those of the right hand spell L-O-V-E, love. No. Preacher is a man of holiness. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning. But wait, let me tell you a secret. Wandering through the river towns for a decade, this false and evil prophet has murdered and robbed a score of women. Foolish, lonely widows who saw in him a man of God and a refuge from loneliness. Of course, it was really all right. Preacher used the money to spread the Lord's gospel. The Lord didn't mind. Now, when Preacher found himself in the cell with a man whose wife was about to become a widow, it set his wits to itching and his fingers to yearning for the quick whispering switchblade knife, which was to him Jehovah's wrathful sword. And Preacher's sly nose twitched at the spoor of easy widow's money once again. 
Where was the money? He would ask Ben again and again, but Ben will not tell. He will never, never tell. And when at last he is hanged and Preacher goes free, what do you suppose that Preacher's quest shall be? It is a night of ghostly river mists at Precept's Landing. A stranger has arrived on the midnight train. Now he stands, staring by the street lamp, wondering behind which of the dreaming small-town windows his quarry sleeps. John and Pearl lie side by side in their feather bed, and Pearl asks John to tell her a story. And John begins a tale of kings and castles and the azure seas of far off Africa. The light of the street lamp shines a square on the bedroom wall, and now John spies shadowed plain there, the figure of a man upon the road by the street lamp's yellow shine. But it is only a shadow and it is gone now and the children sleep. And in the morning, the sky is shining bright and the wind is fair and all is well. It's the sort of day to visit old Uncle Birdie who runs the wharf boat by the riverside. Uncle Birdie, a most astonishing, a most remarkable man, John's favorite friend by far. And John has need of friends these days when the children of Crecep's Landing dog his heels down the sleepy river road crying their cruel children's chant of Ben Harper's hanging. Leave them behind you, John. Find solace and kindliness in the cozy wharf boat of the old river man, this grizzled custodian of the great river herself. Go to the wharf boat of Uncle Birdie, John. visit to Noah's Ark could hold no more wonders for John than this. Fishing tackle and rainbow-tinted lures, tales and banjo tunes of river days gone by, times when the great boats towered like castles of lace along the river shore, mornings when the voices of their whistles made the glad land ring round with the joy of sound like the throats of great cathedral organs. 
Hey! One of the last of them passes now in mid-channel. And old Uncle Bertie grabs John's shoulder and squeezes at the thrill of that grand old sight. In the days to come, John goes more and more often to the wharf boat of his old friend, for a stranger has come to Precept's Landing. A stranger who spends the long twilight hours in the ice cream parlor where Willa Harper works. A stranger with lettered fingers and eyes as hard as marbles. A stranger whose sweet voice lifts in the grand old tunes of salvation. What's wrong with John? He hates the stranger. That's curious. Everyone else in Precept's Landing finds him wonderful and shining with righteousness. Everyone else knows Preacher as a man of the Lord. But John senses upon his evil, tattooed hands the scent of greed, the scent of evil, the scent of murder. But is it fair of John to be so selfish? Not to want his pretty widowed mother to be charmed and courted by such a suitor. Lonely, widowed Willa. Pretty Willa. Impudent, sassy John hates the charming stranger who would help her. Hates the nights when he hears the stranger whisper of treasures hidden, of plundered banknotes cashed away somewhere. Where? Where indeed? And who's to tell? Not John. John has sworn to that to never tell. To never, never tell. The days pass, and the nights go whispering through the Green River Spring, and Willa and the stranger wander hand in hand beneath the trees, together in those evenings when John guards Pearl against the whispered threats against their bedroom windows, and the memory of that first black shadow on the wall the night the stranger came to town, and John keeps his trust, he holds his sacred oath.
when Preacher and Willa Harper go down to Sisterville on their honeymoon, John knows with even greater sureness how firm is his resolve. He will never tell where the money is hidden. He will never, never tell. For Willa, it is a time of love and of salvation. Her new husband has taught her that her love for Ben Harper has been the love of the flesh, and her love for Preacher is the love of souls. Willa thinks it is her salvation that Preacher seeks, but John knows better. It is the hidden money that Preacher seeks. <laughs> Then one soft spring night, Willa returns home from the ice cream parlor unexpectedly, and hears Preacher in the parlor of the dark house talking to Little Pearl. Willa listens, believing, not believing. No, it couldn't be. The money is gone. Ben threw it in the river that day. No, Preacher wouldn't be asking Pearl about the money, pleading, whining, cajoling, threatening. God would not let it be so. The preacher had married her for that. Now Willa is alone with Preacher. The children sleep. The house ticks and moves softly in the darkness. Willa Harper lies in the bed, harking to Preacher's words as he stands by the window in the moonlight, with a quick knife ready in his hand. No, she thinks it cannot be. God would not let it be so. And Willa closes her eyes and prays silently. Preacher moves now at the bidding of his Jehovah, strides swiftly to Willa's bedside with a quick blade glinting in his fist. In the night, John wakens. He harks to the sound of the family car somewhere down in the fog. The whinny and catch, the whinny and catch, as someone tries the starter and then the chatter as the motor catches and the sound of the car fades into the river fog, into the stillness of the cricket-laced midnight. And she, who had loved so well and so unwisely, see her down there beneath the river's limpid depths. Uncle Birdie, out for a morning's catch of fish in Ben Harper's old skiff, catches his line on something and leans forward in the boat's bow and spies the car beneath the water, far below in the shadowy depths. 
See her there, old man. She who loved so well. See how her hair drifts dreamy and gentle as river grass. And see the fresh new mouth slashed so neatly beneath her dreaming chin. Look well, Uncle Birdie, at the woman who once was Willa Harper, beloved of Ben, mother of John and Pearl. Hide now, my lambs. Hide yourselves in the cellar of the deserted home while Preacher prowls the upper rooms, sniffing, searching, calling your names. Hide well, my lambs, for the game is nearly played out. You are alone and helpless, and the hunter draws nigh. John bids Pearl be still. She who fancies it is a kind of game they are playing. And John harks to the sentried pace of the hunter in the upper rooms and knows that the time of showdown has come. And still he knows that he will not tell, that he will never tell. Now the pleasant voice of Preacher in the doorway at the top of the cellar steps. How could he have been so long a guessing that his sly little party would have chosen the cellar for their hiding place? And now for a little talk, no more secrets... And Preacher learned soon enough from Little Pearl that the money he has sought throughout the long evil months is hidden in her doll. So it's douse the candle, John. Grab Pearl's hand now, John. Remember your vow, boy. Run. Quickly. The hunters frothing close upon your heels. Up the steps and lock the door behind your boy. Run, John, run, Pearl, in God's name, run. The night of the hunter is at hand. Run, children, to Uncle Birdie's wharf boat. He's your only friend on all the wide earth now. Run down the silent streets beneath the hunter's moon to the waterside, to the wharf boat of Uncle Birdie. But, alas, this last friend of all cannot save you on this haunted hunter's night. Uncle Birdie lies, sprawled, drunken and dreaming in his straw tick in the wharf boat, dreaming of the face of Willa Harper with her hair drifting soft, soft in the moving waters. So what now, children? Falls of the ravening hunter ring sharp on the cobblestones of Water Street. One chance left, my lambs. Remember Ben Harper's skiff, the little boat Uncle Birdie used for fishing? It rests now in the mud of the shore along the river bank, a hundred yards downstream. One last chance, John. Take Pearl's small hand in the doll with its cursed treasure and run to the boat, John, to the boat quickly. Already the swift razor-edged blade of the madman's knife glints in the moonshine. Here it whispers, it slashes its way through the brush filth and vines upon your very heels, John. Push, boy. Free the boat from the cast of the shore. Quick, boy. He's nearly to the water's edge. And the boat swings free and twirls on the waters like an autumn leaf. 
caught in the warm and saving arms of the great river. And Preacher stands, outraged and bare-fanged in the shallows, and helplessly watches his quarry drift away, and his throat shapes the outcry of a creature thwarted beyond reason, a voice as old and as terrible as the devil's own. Safety and the moonlit vision of the sleeping children in their small ark of safety and Pearl cradling the precious doll in her small arms dreams a child's gentle dream. Once upon a time there was a pretty fly He had a pretty wife This pretty fly But one day she flew away, flew away. She had two pretty children, but one night these two pretty children flew away, flew away. So they dream, these two wanderers upon the lonely earth, upon the dark river, haunted yet by the footfalls of their pursuer, drifting, drifting on the warm waters, floating southward past the little towns and farms, while behind them on a stolen horse the hunter follows the river's winding, knowing that sometime, somewhere, they will come ashore and he will find them. It is a hard world for little helpless things, for the wandering child, for the furred small rabbit on the river shore crouched helpless before the owl's feathers murderous fall. beside a lamplit farmhouse window. Oh, 
When weary of river dreams, the children seek shelter in the hayloft of a barn among the river hills. A night of breathless moonlit brilliance. Yes, a hunter's moon hangs high. And suddenly John wakens in the straw, stunned and quaking with dread at a voice he hears faint in the moonlit distances. Safe and secure from all alarms. And far away on the river road, John sees the black silhouette of a man on a horse riding slowly, patiently on his way, the hunter hunting in the night, the one who never sleeps in his unceasing quest. And it's onward, in exodus again, to the river, to the boat, to the endless quest for safety, for home. Then one bright morning, a miracle of miracles, the boat is beached on the shore and a staunch, gaunt, warm-eyed farm woman stands watching the children a few feet away. Old and yet ageless, widowed a full 40 years, Rachel Cooper. Rachel Cooper, there has never been a time in the quarter century since her own children left home that her house has not echoed and rung to the laughter of homeless children she has taken in off the river roads. Rachel Cooper, a strong tree with branches for many birds, tough as an axe handle, soft as love itself. She feeds her brood until they are rosy, scrubs them till they smart, spanks them when there's cause, and tells them the Lord's tales on bright Sabbath mornings. And so it seemed to John and Pearl that at last they had found a haven from the hunter, and John, shy and mute though he may be, came and stood with the others, Pearl, Clary, little Mary, and Ruby. Ruby, sixteen, and wanton and rounded, fond of town on glittering popcorn Saturday nights when neon burns like sin above the soda fountain and the redneck farm boys wink and whistle softly in the love-warm April night. Ruby, enthralled beyond words by the stranger. 
stranger in a black hat and frock coat with a passion in his eyes and lettered fingers of love and hate, Ruby adores him at once. He is different. He is not like the red-necked farm boys. And does Ruby know of two little children named John and Pearl and a doll? And Ruby smirked and flirted and cracked her gum and said she did indeed. They had come to live with Rachel Cooper only that past week. Ruby, Ruby, ghost of Willow in her way, enthralled by the snake-like majesty of the hunter with the tattooed hands. And so the final siege begins. Rachel Cooper, sensing in a flash the evilness of Preacher, drives him from her dooryard with her steady shotgun. crawling in the night like a ravening fox she wounds him and calls the police to fetch him away to jail Christmas comes, and love comes to those so long unloved, so long unwanted. Christmas with a swirling snow like the white wings of small angels. And presents for all, a watch for John, a bright brooch for Ruby, presents for all. The night is no more, and the hunter is no more, and love and faith are come again into their child's kingdom. And now Rachel, like the good, kind queen in a Christmas fairy tale, sees and marvels at the brave good hearts of little children. Now she thinks the children 
our man at his greatest moment on earth. Lord, save little children. They abide and they endure. Are you a fan of the sideshow carnival and burlesque? Have I got a show for you. Stop. Look through the doorway. They're looking at Grace McDaniels, the mule-faced girl, Priscilla, the bearded lady, Emmett, the elephant-skinned man, a whole presentation of freaks, real people, the strangest people on earth, born to live. Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen, the kind of people you won't believe. Both swallowing swords while they're resting on the bed of nails on their stomach, and they've got their legs coming around and they're grabbing them, and the swords are on fire, and then myself and Brianna Belladonna spit fire off the swords. A look behind the scenes where the average Joe never dares to go. We've got their attention, we've got their money, and we've got them in a seat, so they're strapped in to take the ride that we're going to take them on. Responsible information about exciting new acts. <laughs> I was hurt, I just didn't bother to notice. Well, that's why they put young and stupid in the same category. Wholesome entertainment for young and old. Oh, isn't it wonderful? He just called me a big festering bag of puffs. Isn't it simply wonderful? Ballycast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. What do you say when somebody goes, that was, that was simply disgusting. You all are, should be ashamed of yourselves. Thanks for your money. <laughs> we have some incredible performers in New York. So you get women who were made fun of their whole life because they were flat-chested. You get women who were made fun of because they were overweight. And they all get on stage. And one is not a bigger movie star than the other. They're all just giant stars. Once I've got the toilet plunger down my throat, then I pull out a two-foot measuring stick. And I shove it down my throat, and I get it down to the top edge of the stomach. And everybody thinks I'm done. And then I push it the rest of the way. And they all go, <gasps> so much fun to do. You'll discover a new world, meet new friends, see plenty of things you've never seen before, things you'll remember all your life, and some you may want to forget. How many times can you stick a hook in yourself and not be walking around full of holes? About once every other week. Ballycast is available free on iTunes or directly from Ballycast.com. Brought to you by Blue Ridge Entertainment. You know, every episode webpage has a place to make comments. You need to shut the fuck up. And I have so enjoyed the many insightful and thoughtful comments. You ought to take a gun and you ought to blow your brains out, you imbecile. From you, the members of the Ballycast audience. Shut your fucking mouth! I read every one, and I hope you'll continue to express yourself fully and often. Thank you. Fuck you! Bye.
Alleycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at Ballycast.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Exit to your left. Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe, alive and in person.